Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. As a girl growing up on a Colorado ranch, Jean, Fred's first wife, was gutsy, her sister Carol said. She was fearless, bold. She rode horses and swam in rivers and fished in the pond. Then she moved away to Malibu. And when she died at 34, her ashes were scattered on the sea. But near the ranch, several miles away, there's a tombstone with Jean's name on it. When I went to Colorado to meet Fred's daughters, I asked if I could see it. Jean was Kirsten and Heidi's mom, so one rainy afternoon, the two of them took me there. It was a spooky place, part junkyard, part boneyard, and the ominous thunderheads and veil of rain didn't help. So what kind of place is this? (laughs) So... 
<laughs> we were, I'm laughing because we were just, we were talking, just talking about, about the caretaker it. and just he's, like... He's pretty quirky, but he was a friend of my grandparents also. Um, so there's like a pet cemetery over there. This is a human cemetery. Are those bison over there? We walked and over to a large rock bison. with a plaque that said Schoenhoven, Jean's maiden name. Jean's name was centered between her parents on its own plaque. I asked Kirsten to read it. Sure. Jean M. Rayler, Schoenhoven, 1942 to 1976. And the M is for Marguerite. I remember my grandpa telling me that they got a... He showed me this stone, and uh, he said that he put my mom's name on there because her ashes were spread in the ocean, and they just wanted a place to remember her by. Yeah, I don't feel her here or, like, feel the need to come here, even for our grandparents. Like, that's what being at the ranch is, is all those memories there. Mm-hmm. Um, the- do you feel your mom at the ranch? I don't know if I would say that I feel her there, but I think about the history, like, you know, that she grew up here and the memories there. And actually, I think about, like, like that our dad has been there and, like, he's t- taken a bath in this tub. Like, he talks about, take, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, taking baths there. Well, and so just knowing that they were there. But well, it's not like I feel her presence or anything. It's more just... Right. And we they were so young when Jean died. Kirsten was in diapers. Heidi was barely six. Jean is, understandably, abstract to them. She's another loss, one they can't quite process, because to process that loss might make their pain unbearable. To most people who hear Fred's story, the rhyme of Jean's drowning and Verna's is uncanny, like something out of Edgar Allan Poe. It's so on the nose, it's practically clunky. It's definitely the hardest circumstance to give Fred the benefit of the doubt about. The mysterious death of the first wife makes the second wife's death suspect. And his conviction in the killing of the second wife makes the first wife's death seem like murder, too. But not to the sisters. They don't see it at all. Here's Kirsten. I've definitely had hard conversations with my dad about Jean's death and just really finding out what happened because I was a baby and just, like, the details and also, like, were there investigations, you know, like, supposedly Jean's dad, like, had it looked into, but it wasn't, like, there wasn't a formal investigation. But I've definitely asked probing questions about it. But I kind of see it as, like, look at my dad's history. And it, I mean, I compare him to one of the Kennedys. I mean, look at all, just all of the horrible accidents that can happen to one family. Like fires, bike accidents, car accidents, tractor accidents, just like accident prone or, you know, whatever you want to say. Then Kim, Verna's daughter, said something totally surprising. She said she didn't know how Jean died. I mean, didn't she die of an aneurysm? No. See, no, that's... It wasn't that. That's <laughs> so our that's grandma kept telling us for some <laughs> so reason. how did she die? So she drowned in the swimming pool, but her ultimate cause of death was brain swelling and pneumonia. From the drowning? From the drowning. Hmm. 
But yeah, we were told that she had an aneurysm. Right. I mean, and, I mean, and I think that's medically, that is what people have proposed. You know, there are theories that because she was a flight attendant and the altitude, and then she had just come back from a flight and they were drinking in the hot tub and then she got in the cold pool. So like vessels expanding and contracting. I mean, those were the theories. But I mean, ultimately, she died of pneumonia and brain swelling. And I think the um, coroner's report refers to accidental drowning. I mean, drowning was the... The cause was of the, death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. I'm Dana Goodyear, and this is Lost Hills. Episode 10, Lifelines. Back in 1976, the L.A. County coroner said that Fred's first wife, Jean, had died as a result of accidental drowning in the family pool. Her husband, the only witness, said he found her face down in the shallow end. Okay, case closed. Fred hinted at various reasons Jean might have drowned. She'd lost a lot of weight. She'd gone from a very hot hot tub into an unheated pool. She was deep into LifeSpring, a potentially dangerous self-improvement group. She was having visions of her own death, involving water. But her death was unexplained. It wasn't until 1981 that Jean's drowning was investigated as a homicide by the Santa Barbara detectives who were looking into Verna and Doug's drownings at Bird Rock. At Fred's trial for the murders of Verna and Doug, Stan Roden, the DA, was blocked from introducing testimony about Jean until the penalty phase. So while the jury was considering whether Fred should be sentenced to death, Roden put on a mini-trial for Jean. She was an aggravating factor, a reason, in Stan Roden's mind, to sentence Fred to death. Roden told the jury that Jean's death was a murder, quote, a homicide, done for the motive, once again, of enhancing this defendant's standard of living. This time, Fred didn't take the stand. But he'd certainly told his Gene story before. He'd long been in the habit of buttonholing people and recounting the events of October 15, 1976. He cornered Gene's friend, Barbara Warner, at Gene's memorial service. I really think he had that story so down pat. He rattled it off so fast. So little emotion that I thought, something's wrong with this. He told the story repeatedly to his friend Mike Colleen. When Gene died, Fred spent an awful lot of time at our house. He would come over in the evening and cry. He, if we went through it once, we went through it 50 times. Every step he took from the hot tub to the house, the way I was recall the story was that one of the babies was crying in the background and that when Fred went Fred said you you know like you stay here I'll go quiet the baby take care of the baby and get you a glass of wine which he requested so I I believe he said something like seven minutes he was gone or something because he'd stepped it out and timed it 
And when he came back, everybody knows the story. Gene was face down in the pool and all the terrible things that happened at that point. Fred even told the story to Santa Barbara detectives, Fred Ray and Claude Tuller, when they came to talk to him about Verna and Doug's drownings in January 1981. While discussing what had happened to Verna and Doug, detectives said Fred, quote, continually referred to a handwritten set of notes. That was weird. Fred also told the detectives he had notes on Gene's death, which they found later when they searched his house. That was extra weird. Telling his Gene story, Fred has always made a point of mentioning the alcohol he and Gene were drinking. And because he was the only witness, it features in other people's tellings, too. A story with one source repeated so often, it comes to resemble truth. She had already poured a glass of wine. You went in the house. To get her a glass of wine. Her glass of wine. She said to him, would you mind bringing back a glass of wine? You get your glass of wine. We sort of killed off that bottle, and then I got another bottle. The neighbor boy who ran over when he heard Fred calling for help that night said he'd noticed wine glasses and a pair of unsmoked joints in the backyard, like a stage complete with props. But these were not incidental period details. They served a very important purpose. I believe they were intended to introduce doubt, reasonable doubt about how Gene ended up in the pool. And the reason I think this is, Gene was not intoxicated, not even a little bit. Stan Roden, the DA, presented evidence that showed her blood alcohol level was 0.1 milligrams per deciliter, one one-thousandth of the legal limit for driving, and there were no other drugs in her system. The fact of her sobriety is meaningful, and it could mean the L.A. County coroner's report was wrong. And it can't be accident, okay? This is Dr. Ronald Wright, a forensic pathologist who's also a scuba diver. Adult humans that are not intoxicated won't drown in a swimming pool. It doesn't happen. If it does happen, they either committed suicide or they are a victim of homicide. Okay, it's easy. He testified at the mini-trial that Gene's death was not due to natural causes. It was unnatural. And unnatural deaths are either accidents or suicides or homicides. I didn't see any evidence that she was suicidal, so therefore it looks like a homicide to me. But there were no signs of trauma to Jean's body. So during the mini-trial, Roden asked another witness, a pathologist who'd reviewed Jean's file, if it was possible for a person to hold another person underwater long enough to drown them without leaving marks. It is possible, was the response. In the end, though, the judge ruled that the DA hadn't sufficiently made his case. He hadn't proved Fred's involvement with Gene's death beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's where Gene was left, in a kind of limbo, unresolved, not likely an accident or a suicide, and not a provable homicide. Before we got off the phone, I asked Dr. Wright about another part of his testimony, which had caught my attention. Fred Rayler described having found his wife, Jean, in the pool, face down, arms outstretched. And you said, that's impossible. 
That's not the way dead people float, <laughs> okay? When you lose consciousness from whatever you've lost consciousness, you know, gravity works. Their arms aren't outstretched. They actually go straight down in their... It's called a dead man's float. They teach people to do that uh, in swimming lessons. So you found that to be suspicious, that that's what his description of his wife. He's incorrect, <laughs> okay? She wasn't. That's not the way humans are when they drown. Did that make him seem like he was lying? I would think that's highly probable, although that is a jury determination, not mine. I'm just telling you, you can't do it the way he said it happened. It wasn't provable, but it was so obvious. Fred, the waterman, the Navy diver, had misdescribed the dead man's float. He says he didn't kill Gene. I asked him, just like I asked him about Verna and Doug. Fred, I have to ask you, did you kill Gene? I did not. But I don't believe him. And if it's possible to kill someone in water and leave no mark, that means those second secret autopsies of Verna and Doug don't really matter. The findings of pre-mortem trauma could be totally invalid. The bodies could present no traumatic wounds. And Fred could still be the one who killed them. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash lost today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash lost. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast.
Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. In the search of Fred's house on Sea Level Drive, the Santa Barbara detectives seized an 11-page document detailing plans for a sailing trip to Santa Cruz Island. It included an incredibly detailed hand-drawn map of the island, including flora and fauna and shipwrecks and all the spots to drop anchor. The guy was a planner. Fred told the detectives he'd often sailed his boat, Perseverance, to Santa Cruz Island and had the dory out there at least a dozen times. He got to know the island and its features inch by inch, clocking every cove and inlet, how the shadows fell. At the dot representing Bird Rock on the map, it says, Tunnel Through Rock. That's because the sea cave on the western end of Bird Rock, at low tide, becomes a passage through. Are we on the blue? We're on blue. A month after we walked around Sea Level Drive together, on a crisp, clear October morning, John Lytell and I took a boat out to Santa Cruz Island. So welcome aboard Blue, guys. Glad to have you here. Um, again, Captain Randy. Fun fact on the boat, John McVie, the bassist on Fleetwood Mac, owned this boat for 10 years. At the time of Doug's death, when they were both eight, John was Doug's best friend. Now he's a detective with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. I'm a deputy sheriff. You want me to not bring a gun on the boat? Oh, that's fine. It's a matter of, okay. And I don't... Yeah, I get it. <laughs> For 40 years, Doug's death has tormented him. But he'd never seen the place where it happened. Now he was ready to face it and hopefully get some resolution. 
Crossing the channel, John was chewing everything over. He takes him out there. Um, he knows when he's gonna do it. He knows why he's gonna do it. He knows where he's gonna do it because this is the best scenario. I have to make it look like an accident. Well, this is what I got. He's a chatty guy, but as we approached the island, he got quiet. Captain Randy filled the silence. So Santa Cruz Island is about 28 miles long. It's the largest island off the California coast. Um, so we'll just be seeing a very small little, little tiny bit of, of the island. And then farther up as you work... Bird Rock down, loomed, craggy and imposing, with creases and shadows that reminded me of He-Man's castle, Grayskull. At its western end was Scorpion Anchorage. We were heading to the other end, to Little Scorpion Anchorage. Well, we're just entering into the Little Scorpion Anchorage. Where Perseverance anchored on January 2nd, 1981. Uh, Bird Rock is off to our starboard quarter. It was noon. We were right on time. And uh, we'll come in here and circle around and find a, find a good spot to set the anchor. Verna, Fred, and Doug ate their lunch, sandwiches and chips, then got in the dory between 1 and 1.30. Kirsten went below deck to take a nap with her grandparents. Heidi and Kim went with Fred's brother and his wife in the inflatable boat to explore the beach at Santa Cruz Island. John and I got in Captain Randy's motorized dinghy and powered toward Bird Rock. So if we get around this, what we have now is a lot of lobster season, so we got to negotiate through this minefield of traps. There's a lot of kelp on the other side, so we'll see how close we can get. The criminalist, Dwayne Mose, had speculated that Fred killed Verna and Doug inside the sea cave on the western end of Bird Rock, so we headed there to see if the sea cave theory made sense. The sea cave entrance is right around the corner. I've been thinking the sea cave was too exposed. Anyone on the beach, including Heidi and Kim, could have seen Fred row the dory in or out of the cave. But the mouth of the cave was deep black, with an aura of darkness around it. You can't see anything. You're not going to see anything happen in there. Past that first rock, these people on shore are going to see. you got to think angles out here. Everything around the cave is dark. You really can't see even an orange dory going in there. I told John about an earlier trip Fred and Verna had made to Santa Cruz Island, six months before the fatal one. It was 4th of July weekend, 1980. They took the kids on Perseverance and spent four days out there with, get this, the lawyer, Bill Fairfield, and his family, and Fred's old sailing buddy, Gene's old flame, Dick Felthoen, and his wife and kids. It was the hot tub sextet, reunited, with Verna in place of Jean. They had a blast, hiking to waterfalls, shooting off fireworks, belting out rounds of God Bless America. It was the most perfect 4th of July ever, Fred wrote later. He and Verna rode all around, exploring in the dory. Fred commended her for her attitude. That's casing the joint. He understood exactly what he needed to do to get his job done without anybody knowing. That's what like technicians will do. They'll plan like, I don't ever forget about... A week after the July 4th cruise, Fred and Verna had their secret official wedding, solidifying the financial connection between them. If she died, everything she had, and more, the insurance they'd soon buy, would be his outright or in a trust that he controlled. 
After looking at it, I didn't buy the sea cave theory. Too risky, no matter how low the visibility. And it was too different from the story Fred presented to authorities. Fred was methodical, a planner. He liked to simplify, hone, control. So I asked Captain Randy to take us to the place Fred said the dory had capsized, in the open ocean on the north side of Bird Rock. So according to the drawings, the boat capsized right in here. Up front of the rock. Right. That's where we're going. Oh, on the other side of the rock? Yeah. That's where, according to Fred, Lady jumped at the birds and they all lunged and toppled and the dory overturned. He said he could see Perseverance anchored at Little Scorpion the entire time. That was the point, he said, to get a picture of Doug holding Lady in the dory with Bird Rock in the near ground and Perseverance in the distance. But as we moved toward the spot in front of Bird Rock, I noticed that Captain Randy's sailboat in Little Scorpion Anchorage was slipping out of view. The north face of Bird Rock is cupped, so when you're close to it, the sides of the rock block both anchorages from view, meaning you can't see or be seen by the boats on either side. If you're in this cove, you cannot see Scorpion Anchorage at all. All those boats on that side wouldn't see anything. No way, look at that. If he does it right in here, nobody can see him. In front of the rock, there was an explosion of white water, a geyser that shot into the air as the waves pounded into an underwater cavern. Oh, yes, that's the blowhole. Let's go as close to that as as we can. Fred said that after the capsize, he collected Verna and Doug and swam with them to Bird Rock, with Lady on his shoulders, clawing at his head. He described maneuvering past the blowhole, with difficulty, to hoist Lady up. John stared up at the rock, the 60-foot cliff face. Put the dog up on this side? It's a dog, right? Not a mountain goat? This is a dog. can't be more than, you know, three inches. All that black is all, like, muscles and stuff, and that's, like, it's sharp. The dog didn't get up on the island on this side. No way. No way. We idled in our dinghy, looking up at the sheer rock wall. The blowhole went off again, and it all started coming together for me. Like a story. Fred would have rowed them here, knocked them out, drowned them, flipped the dory and shoved it away, swum a short distance to the rock, and waited for rescue. Maybe he offloaded Lady on his way to the spot, on that gentle ledge on the eastern side, like the Santa Barbara DA thought, making excuses to Verna and Doug about why. Or maybe Lady was still in the dory until the murder, and she made her own way over to the eastern ledge, her survival instincts kicking in, her little legs paddling furiously. Verna, he would have killed for the money. Doug, because he was the witness. We went back to our boat and got ready to head home. From the back deck, John squinted out at Bird Rock. Doug's ashes had been scattered at sea, and there was no marker for him anywhere on land. So this was it. Bird Rock was his grave. 
I'm looking at that and I see all the rocks. I'm like, those are all tombstones. That's all death. That's how I look at it. Like, I just, it, it's just a weird, I got a creepy feeling. Uh, this whole place is not what I thought it would be. Before Christmas, in December of 1980, John had said goodbye to Doug, thinking he'd see him again in a few months, or whenever the railers got back from their sailing trip to Mexico. Instead, over the holidays, Doug had died here. John looked ill and kept turning his face away from the rock, only to have his gaze pulled back to it. This is like death. You just feel death. I don't I know it's not like that for everybody, but I don't I'll probably never ever come back here again. No way. Not worth it. I don't know why that affects me so much. I don't know if I don't know if back then I wasn't like I want to be in law enforcement to solve crimes, but more helping people that are helping people that are getting drowned and getting killed. Just it's not fair. It's not fair. It's bullshit. Like he didn't he didn't kill just them. He he like killed part of our lives. We turned around and headed back across the channel with hundreds of dolphins leaping in our wake. I asked John if the trip had brought him clarity, and he said, yeah. He felt he knew where Doug had died. It's a great place to kill somebody. Nobody can see you. Nobody can hear you. But where that happened, where that, that little cove is, it's like Professor Plum with the candlestick in the conservatory. Nobody saw it, but you know what happened. And that, when you look at it that way, it's scary. Like that area is scary because it's perfect. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. 
A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The case against Fred Rayler, in spite of all that scientific evidence, was largely circumstantial. If you looked at it one way, Fred was a victim of unfathomably bad luck. That's been the subtext of every conversation I've had with him. His persona is built around this idea of steadfast, stoic perseverance in the face of hardship. Looked at another way, the authorities' way, Fred's a devious and malicious killer. From that point of view, it's no coincidence that people close to him kept drowning. He was drowning them. But that's the thing about circumstantial evidence. It doesn't look the same to everyone. The first time I went up into the hayloft in Colorado, I saw something really strange. It was a kiddie pool with a plastic skeleton in it and an oar and a headless dummy dressed in boys' clothing and, not attached, a painted pumpkin head. A skeleton with an oar? A dummy with no head? Law enforcement thought Fred had stunned Verna with the dory's oar. A Doug-sized dummy and a dummy head had been used in the trial and helped to convict Fred. Clearly, this was someone's morbid idea of a joke. 
Wait, Heidi, can you come over here and tell us about this? So what is the situation here? So when you came in... At first, she had no idea what I was talking about. She couldn't see it. It was a random collection of stuff, disconnected, not meaningful, unrelated. You're looking at a kiddie pool with... There's a skeleton in it, and then there's also... It looks like a scarecrow, um, and then there's paddles... The paddles are for a set board that's not up here right now. And the scarecrow my daughter's built for Halloween, we put it down at the end of the Then, like an optical illusion where a hidden picture emerges only after you stare at it a while, she saw what I saw. But it does, now that I'm looking at it, it's bizarre. Yeah, no, it's just a pile of junk. (laughs) With a few skeletons thrown in, yeah. I considered whether her explanation was reasonable, that these things would have ended up together completely unintentionally. No way. She had a plausible explanation for everything, but it didn't pass a gut check. According to the law, though, I would have to give Heidi the benefit of the doubt. It was just an accident. The kiddie pool moment illustrated something else for me, too. How much Fred's daughters need him to be innocent and how blinding that need is. Kim's father, Bill, died after falling from a rooftop in 1975. Her mother died with her little brother at Bird Rock in 1981. Heidi and Kirsten's mother, Jean, drowned in the family pool in Malibu in 1976. Fred is all they have. Sometimes, when you love and need someone that badly, You can't see what's right before your eyes. And if they want to keep him, they must believe him. A few years ago, Kirsten, the youngest of the sisters, Fred's favorite, prime kid, spearheaded a petition to ask Jerry Brown, the governor of California at the time, to grant her father clemency. The governor's office sent someone to interview Fred in prison, and then the Santa Barbara DA's office began reaching out to victims, which meant they called Kim, Verna's daughter, Doug's older sister. Of the three sisters, Kim is the most secretive. Almost no one in her life knows the story of her childhood. The whole time we were in the hayloft, she rarely volunteered anything other than quiet agreement with her sisters. Now she spoke up. When that happened, um, I mean, I was surprised by it, but then also, like, you know, hurt and offended that they even did that. You know, I got his voice message and then called him back the next day and then just flat out told him that I support my dad's clemency and all this procedure and stuff like that and then didn't hear from their office again. But, yeah. This is Kirsten. But then, I mean, we doubled down and sent Uh another, you know, batch of probably 20 letters of everyone saying, like, yeah, you may consider us the victim's family, but we love and support him to this day. We, you know, want you to release him. I mean, how many times can the victim's family say that? And it doesn't matter. I mean, he's 78 years old with health problems. He's not a risk You know, he's not a risk to anybody. 
if he ever was, he's not now. They're accusing him of killing family members, and we're his family, so yeah, we'll take the risk of him possibly killing us. Fred was the perfect father who designed the perfect crime, murder with no witnesses that left no marks. Once, authorities believed he got away with it. The second time, he got caught. On the surface, his family was perfect, but the real story was what happened below the surface, where he held them under and no one saw. I don't think the trial or even the investigation was necessarily fair, but I do think the jury sent a guilty man to prison. But Fred, he's still keeping up appearances. In the tapes from 40 years ago, he sounds kind of numb, but also irritated, as if he's explaining things through gritted teeth to a dim-witted kid. In our conversations, he's Mr. Malibu again, genial, affable, chuckling like a shopping mall Santa Claus, who you know is just an out-of-work actor in a polyester suit. Good morning. How are you? I'm... (laughs) I feel contained for some reason. Contained? Yeah, that's a joke. This conversation was just a couple weeks ago, on December 8th. It was our 25th phone call. Fred said he was still working on his case. His appeal back in 1985 hadn't worked because even though all three judges felt that Duane Mose's testimony about the experiments with the dummy and the dory should not have been allowed, they didn't agree on how much it had influenced the jury's decision. Two of the judges said that even without Mose's testimony, the outcome of the trial would have been the same. And then the third one wrote a separate dissenting opinion where he went into the whole thing and said, no, this is primarily the reason we've got this guy. In recent years, California law has changed to reflect growing skepticism about forensic science, which can be so persuasive to juries, but is also often total bunk. Now there's an appetite to take another look at cases where junk science may have played a role in conviction. So Fred's forging ahead, serving as his own lawyer. So... I've been basically pressing that issue along with some others all the way through the court system. So I started out with uh, the Superior Court in Santa Barbara and then went all the way up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court of California. And that was just done uh, this year. I had a feeling this would be the last time I'd talk to Fred. And I wanted to understand something that had been bothering me all along. That his love for his daughters seems so real. It's the one part of his facade I just can't see through. I don't think it is a facade. So I asked him about his relationship with them and what their unfaltering support has meant to him. Oh, it, it means absolutely everything. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate that they're astute enough and old enough now to really comprehend both situations and to understand the the legal process and and basically they're my lifeline at the moment because if I if I didn't have my daughters 
I'd be in a lot of trouble. What would happen if one of them questioned either of those stories that you've told them? Sure. Well, I would try my utmost to figure out why they had changed their mind and to do everything that I could to, you know, help them uh, understand it even better. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's one of those it's one of those things that knowing the three women it would be hard for me to grasp. It would be hard for you to grasp why they might have questions. Oh, exactly. In other words, there's a lot of things that none of us know. And that'll always be the case. But what they do know basically has led them to stay with me and be with me, you know, the entire time and bring husbands up and bring babies up and, you know, visit me at all different funny places. Uh, the old Folsom, we actually had family visits in the hospital there. Mm-hmm. And so I had these three little girls basically visiting me for a weekend in prison, which is, you know, rather astounding that uh, that they had the fortitude to be able to face that and uh, and basically for us to have a pretty good visit. You think your identity remaining is your identity at root that you are a good father? Yeah, and uh, the thing that we say over and over is that. I'm probably better as a father in here than I would have been out there. Being in here, I followed them at every step of their lives and listened and and shared letters and you know it's uh I've gotten to know them and them to know me, so you know, it's one of those little twists of irony. Do you think you'll get out? I do. Yes, because I know that what they did wasn't fair and it violated the rule of law and at some point. The line had gone dead. I talked to Fred 25 times for a total of 6 hours, 45 minutes, and 47 seconds. He told me about Jean, that they were working things out. He told me about Verna, that she was the love of his life. He told me about their life in Malibu, that it was perfect, wholesome, sweet, a dream. But it was right there, when Fred was talking about his daughters, and the kind of father he's been, how they're his lifeline. That was the one moment, maybe the only moment, when I knew Fred was telling the truth.
Lost Hills is reported, written, and hosted by me, Dana Goodyear. The editor is Ben Adair. Our senior producer is Haley Fox, who contributed a ton of additional reporting. Producers are Nicole McNulty, Cameron Kell, and Savannah Wright. Micah Hauser is our fact-checker. Our composer and sound designer is Dan Leone. Our mix engineers are David Herman and Michael Raphael. Our cover art is called For a Kid, and it's by Francesca Gabbiani. Ben Adair and I are the creators and executive producers. Executive producers for Pushkin Industries are Jacob Weisberg, Lital Malad, and Jacob Smith. Thanks also to the Pushkin team, Mia Lobel, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Amy Gaines, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Eric Sandler, Mary Beth Smith, Brant Haynes, Jake Gorski, Sean Carney, Royston Bezerve, Maya Koenig, and Daniela Lacan. Lost Hills is a production of Western Sound and Pushkin Industries. You can sign up for Western Sound's newsletter at western-sound.com. Pushkin's newsletter is at pushkin.fm. Follow at Lost Hills Pod on social media. And please remember to rate and review the show in your podcast app. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.